From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palasnik. The life of a 16-year-old non-binary teenager from Oklahoma was remembered at a village in Normal last night. Max Benedict, who had been the target of bullying, was involved in a fight in a school bathroom in early February, and the next day collapsed and was declared dead at the hospital. Prairie Pride Coalition Secretary Elizabeth Fox Anvik advised allies to support LGBTQ youth who may feel unsafe at school. Show up. And it doesn't mean show up in a grand way but maybe just find somebody and ask them how they're doing and and create a space that they feel like maybe they can talk. Benedict's cause of death is not yet known, nor whether charges will be filed. The housing crisis in Bloomington Normal is forcing one Bloomington shelter to get innovative. Home Sweet Home Ministries has started a master leasing program. It helps struggling prospective renters find stable housing. CEO Matt Burgess says tenants sign their leases with Home Sweet Home. The shelter helps them meet payments and other goals so the tenant can eventually sign their own lease. The ultimate goal for everybody that we're serving is that they wind up in permanent housing. This is just one of the tools that we're using to make that outcome a reality. Burgess adds that they're still working out the kinks. It's possible the shelter discontinues the program if it doesn't pan out. And Governor J.B. Pritzker is proposing a major tax hike on sports betting. Mawa Iqbal tells us more. It's to offset what the governor's budget office predicted earlier to be a $900 million shortfall. Pritzker's proposal calls for more than doubling the sports wagering tax paid by casino sportsbooks from 15 to 35 percent. The revenue from that would go towards the state's general fund and capital projects fund. The state estimates this tax increase would generate an additional $200 million. Authorized in 2019, sports wagering in Illinois has seen exponential growth. The Center for Tax Budget and Accountability says sports wagers raked in $611 million in 2022. Ohio made a similar move last year when Governor Mike DeWine signed off on a sports wager tax increase from 10 to 20 percent. I'm Mawa Iqbal. And I'm Jack Palesnik. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from SunPower by Legacy Solar, offering residential and commercial solar power services to central Illinois. The Legacy Solar team can help customers navigate the Illinois solar program and the installation process. More at LegacySolarPower.com. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Both President Biden and former President Donald Trump will visit the southern border in Texas today. Biden's visit reflects a more aggressive approach to one of his greatest political liabilities. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. The split screen appearances also reflect how visible the border issue is in 2024. As more Americans tell pollsters, immigration is the most important problem facing the U.S. in decades. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is covering the campaign. All right, so Biden and Trump are going to be a little over 300 miles away from each other in Texas. Let's start with President Biden. His second border visit, the first one, January 23rd in El Paso, part of a longer trip to Mexico for the North American Leaders Summit. Franco, what's he hoping to accomplish on this trip? 
Yeah, hey, Biden's going to visit Brownsville, Texas, where he's going to meet with Border Patrol agents and local leaders. I mean, what he wants to accomplish is to show that he's taking action on the border. You know, it's also actually part of this shift to the political center as he looks toward November. I mean, yesterday he brought in police chiefs to talk about reducing crime, and today it's going to be immigration. Now, on the border, you can expect Biden's going to attack House Republicans for blocking a deal that would have tightened rules for asylum and giving more money to hire more border agents. And he's going to go after Trump as well. I mean, Biden says Trump is actually to blame for torpedoing that deal in order to score political points, or at least not to allow Biden to get any. I mean, what Biden's looking to do is kind of turn the tables on Republicans on this issue. So I want to ask you about that. First, though, Trump's visit. He was near the border back in November, and he's made a handful of visits as president. What's his goal today? Yeah, he has made a handful of visits. I mean, his objective is is pretty simple. He wants to highlight the problems on the border, tie them to Biden's policies, and present himself as the only person who can fix them. Now, he's going to Eagle Pass, Texas, where the state has been trying to boost enforcement on its own. Trump's expected to you know, highlight recent crimes committed by migrants in cities like New York. And this week, he and his allies have been blaming Biden for the death of a 22-year-old nursing student student in Georgia. An undocumented immigrant from Venezuela was arrested for that crime. You know, Trump wants to capitalize on polls that show most Americans are not happy with Biden's handling of the border. And as you say, this split screen of a day just shows how the border has become a major issue in the presidential election. Yeah. Now, okay, to those opportunities that Democrats see, what are they? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Evan Ross Smith, a Democrat, but a pollster for the political strategy group Blueprint, and he pointed to a special election in New York earlier this month, won by Democrat Tom Suozzi, who went on the offensive over the border, especially after Republicans tanked that deal. We now have proof positive in this latest election that Republicans are out over their skis again on immigration. They don't know what to do, and they've handed Democrats something they can run on for months or maybe years. Now, Ross Smith says it actually reminds him of how Democrats were able to campaign and win on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, I got to say that's a very optimistic perspective, but it's also very telling how Democrats see this as an opportunity to flip the script on Republicans to kind of counter the narrative that Democrats are soft on the border again on an issue that's really been incredibly difficult for Biden. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks a lot. Thanks, A. New Mexico's governor made headlines with an executive order last fall banning guns in public places. A less well-known but still debated directive in that order told the state to test schools' wastewater for traces of drugs. It's unclear how that data will be used. KUNM's Megan Myskowski reports. There's blowing dust and sideways snow coming down in the desert outside of Belen High School, about 30 miles south of Albuquerque. Two people in bright yellow vests and heavy winter clothes work over an open manhole in the brush behind the school. Ice packs to make sure everything stays cold. Not that that's a problem right now. Tom Brown works with Eastern Research Group, a company that the state of New Mexico is contracting with. So this is our sample. He and a state employee lower tubes down into the sewer, then suspend a barrel-shaped device at the top. This rig will pull samples of wastewater that's exited the school's bathrooms throughout one school day. We're going to take 32 samples every 15 minutes. That equals eight hours worth of samples. 
This is happening at 194 schools across the state. Jonas Armstrong with the state's Environment Department says schools reflect their communities. And that's why it makes sense to test them. But data from testing can be imprecise. It can tell us that a substance is present. It can't tell us who is using it. Can't tell us how many people are using it. No one at the state level has said what they plan to do with the information. Critics say that raises red flags. The state posts results online. So far, it says cocaine is in about two-thirds of the schools tested, and fentanyl in about a tenth. That data isn't surprising. The superintendent of Albuquerque Public Schools told the Wall Street Journal it confirms a long-known reality. Wastewater testing for drugs has existed for decades and is more popular in Europe and Australia. There has been a lot of wastewater testing for illicit substances in different ways in different places uh, around the country and around the world. Since COVID-19, it has become more accepted and common in the U.S., but not for schools with minors. Contaminant researcher Carlton Poindexter, who teaches at Howard University, says hopefully wastewater testing will lead to more resources for kids who need it. But... There is the risk of stigmatization, and then that community already has some other overlapping stigmatizations and perceptions, and that just kind of adds on to it. And he echoes the fear of many in these communities that it could lead to more police in schools. Marginalized communities, they usually don't have the best experiences with authority figures and police officers. Dexter says communities should know about the testing and have a say in the response to it. Because, he says, an evidence-based approach is a community-based one. Southwest Organizing Project activist Amanda Gallegos says the state does consult them on cutting down on illegal drug use. But with the wastewater testing, it feels like it isn't listening. The solution should come from the impacted people. New Mexico's Environment Department spent $600,000 testing school wastewater for drugs over the last six months and is asking for more to continue it. Gallegos calls that a shocking price tag. She thinks that money would have made a bigger impact elsewhere. I could name a couple things off the top of my head. She says teens need places to go, like a teen center or jobs, more counselors in schools, and addiction treatment. There's not a lot available in New Mexico. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski in Albuquerque. This is NPR News. Good Thursday morning. You are listening to 89.1 at WGLT. I'm Ariel Jones. A Tennessee resident opted out of Medicare Part B, which carries a $175 monthly premium. Now her heirs face a huge bill for an air ambulance ride. More from the bill of the month in eight minutes. Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, where Allegiant flies nonstop to Tampa. St. Pete, Florida beaches are just one flight away. Close. Convenient. Sierra. More at CIRA.com. A Bloomington nonprofit is trying a creative way to help renters find a place to live. It's one of the things you need to know to start your day for Thursday, February 29th. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Leadoff. 
Now let's lead off with housing. For people with prior evictions or other blemishes from their past, finding housing can be a nightmare. For some, it's how they wind up experiencing homelessness. A new program from a Bloomington-based shelter looks to give people a second chance. WGLT's Melissa Ellen has more. Shelly Hart experienced homelessness on and off for around two years. That is, until Home Sweet Home Ministry Shelter in Bloomington offered her a chance to become a renter. She says it's given her a new lease, literally on a unit, but to some extent also on life. They gave me a way to see hope and a better future, like it, that it could be good again and that I could be a functional adult and happy and that I deserved that happiness. That's because Hart couldn't have gotten an apartment otherwise. She had an eviction in 2021. Hart is one of three people to join Home Sweet Home's master leasing program. It allows tenants to sublease through the organization, which is more flexible about who they let into their units. Home Sweet Home holds the lease with the landlord. Shelter CEO Matt Burgess says Home Sweet Home is pleased to cater to clients they trust. We know them well enough to know, well, these, this one thing should not be what's in their way of getting housed. Home Sweet Home launched the program around six months ago. Staff say they're still working out the kinks, and they're looking for more landlords to sign leases with the organization. For The leadoff, I'm Melissa Ellen. Here's some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. The IHSA Girls Basketball State Finals returned to SefQ Arena in Normal this weekend. Tourism officials say the 18,000 visitors over three days will bring an economic impact of around $1.4 million to the community. Scott Ireland from Western Michigan University has been named the new dean of ISU's Wansu Kim College of Fine Arts, effective July 1st. And the city of Bloomington Township is hosting an open house and ribbon cutting for its newly renovated building on Gridley Street. That's from 10 to 2 on Tuesday. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. Eating disorders are a mental illness, even if they're not always thought of in that way. Hillary Pesha is an eating disorder recovery coach. She opened a nonprofit in Bloomington called One Hope Project four years ago this week, right before the COVID pandemic. And during this time of growing mental health awareness, more and more people are turning to her for help. In this edition of Sound Health, Pesha tells WGLT student reporter Megan Spurline that the driving force behind the nonprofit was both professional and personal. I um, personally have struggled with an eating disorder from a very young age. Um, off and on over the years, and it really kind of got, um, kind of hit a peak, if you will, um, right after having my son, who's now 13. So it's, so it's been a while. And that was when I was really like, I need, I need my own help. And so I went on a journey to get help. And there um, really was nothing in the area to help. I'm an advocate at heart, um, and I was able to persevere, but I just remember thinking nobody should have to work this hard to get the help that they need and deserve. Uh, And then professionally, because I've been in this community all my life, and uh, my background is nonprofits, and no matter what population of folks that I was working with um, at a nonprofit, what stood out to me was there was always... Um, clients who would say that they struggled with an eating disorder or body image issues or disordered eating. And so it, that kind of stood out to me too. So I guess, you know, in 2020 was when I decided enough's enough and uh, I wanted to fill a need and a void um, that was in our community. We have a lot of great services, but eating disorders is not one of them. Are there any like particular eating disorders or like treatments that you guys focus on? Eating disorders 
and where we're kind of at as a culture um, are kind of behind the times in the sense of, um, I always equate it to, because I have a background in working in domestic violence and sexual assault, and it reminds me of we eating disorders is kind of where domestic violence, sexual assault was like 20 years ago. So not a lot of people, like maybe, yes, people have heard of it. They've heard of maybe anorexia or bulimia, maybe binge eating, um, but they know very little and there's a lot of stigma around it. And so I think a lot of people think, oh, it's choice or is it really that big of a problem? And so I think that, so that is part of it. And so part of what we um, do at One Hope Project is bringing the education awareness, but our focus isn't on any particular eating disorder. Um, in fact, somebody doesn't have to have an eating disorder diagnosis to come and get services. If they simply have, you know, maybe an unhealthy relationship with food or um, struggle with body image, some things that maybe put them at risk for developing an eating disorder, then we work with those clients as well. And what would you say is like the mission of One Hope Project or like what kind of messages are you hoping to send to the Bloomington Normal community? Yes. So obviously we do have our mission to help people on their journey to recovery. But I think really some of the takeaways that I really um, want to really our community to know and get behind is really recognizing that eating disorders are a mental illness. So a lot of times people think it's a choice or they have a lot of different misconceptions about eating disorders and what they are, but it is a mental illness. And we, it's time we kind of, I think, really realize that because we have a lot of great services in our community for mental health. Um, so kind of letting, you know, eating disorders have a seat at the proverbial table. So, you know, I mean, pun intended or not intended, I'm not sure, but, you know, it's time for eating disorders to have a seat at the table when we're talking about mental health and so that it is a problem and it does exist in our community even though people haven't maybe seen it as much and that's because there hasn't been a one hope project and so not only is it a mental health issue but it actually has the highest mortality rate than any other mental illness yet it's the most underfunded and so we're kind of in an uphill battle there's a lot of people coming in our doors now that was Hillary Pacia with the One Hope Project in Bloomington, speaking with WGLT student reporter Megan Spurline. Her group hosted two events this week to mark Eating Disorders Week. Support for WGLT health coverage comes from Carl Health. You can count on Carl as your partner in health care. Information at carl.org. Before we let you go, the fourth and final candidate for ISU's presidential search, Valerio Ferme from the University of Cincinnati, will be on campus today for an open forum at 1.30 at the Bowen Student Center. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. Thanks to our producer, Rosalie Truback. You can subscribe to The Lead Off on the NPR app or wherever you listen. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from PNC Financial Services. PNC strives to make a difference in the communities they serve by supporting local arts and cultural events that can touch lives, break down barriers, and inspire imaginations. PNC, local teams making a difference in central Illinois. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. And now it's time for our February Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner, KFF Health News. Welcome, doctor. Welcome back. Good to be back. So whose bill are we discussing today? We're looking into a bill for Deborah Pritchard. Deborah had a stroke and several brain aneurysms last year. After one incident, though, Deborah was rushed by helicopter from rural Tennessee to a hospital in Nashville. Deborah, who was 70, died of a brain bleed some weeks later. That left her family to deal with the financial fallout from the air ambulance trip. Hmm. Okay, reporter Emily Siner spoke with Deborah's daughter. And now Emily has a breakdown on the ins and outs of Medicare, like nothing you've heard before. Alicia Weberg's mother, Deborah, was a retired factory worker who was careful with her money, loved her grandkids, and was a very private person, sometimes to a fault, Alicia says. Anytime we tried to get her to talk about having a will or if she had enough money or if she had enough insurance, she just always was very tight-lipped about it and said everything was fine. This was a problem after Deborah's emergency flight to the hospital. Shortly after her death, the family opened up a bill from the helicopter company for nearly $82,000. Alicia had heard that helicopter bills could be expensive, but that price tag left her stunned. We had already kind of done an internet search to see what the average price would be. But then when it came in, we were just kind of like, this is ridiculous. At the heart of the issue is the complicated nature of Medicare. Most Americans age 65 and older can enroll for free in what's called Medicare Part A. And this covers hospital stays, like Deborah's. But what it doesn't cover is ambulance rides. For that, you need Medicare Part B. And Part B costs about $175 a month if you don't have a subsidy. Alicia realized after the fact that her mother skipped that coverage. She suspects Deborah wanted to avoid having to pay for those premiums every month. I just wish I had known she didn't have adequate insurance so that I could have talked to her. And whether it would have done any good or not, it would have still felt like I did what I could. To make things more confusing, in addition to Part A and Part B, Medicare also has a Part C and D. And so while Alicia is frustrated that her mom did not get the extra insurance, she's also frustrated by the Medicare system. I do find it concerning that, you know, seniors on a fixed income have to make that decision. Why, as you get older and and you go into Medicare and fixed incomes, why is it more complicated? As for the lingering bill, a spokesperson for the helicopter company Global Medical Response said in an email it's committed to finding a, quote, equitable solution. Alicia has been working with the lawyer for her mother's estate, who tried to get the medical transport company to negotiate on the cost. As of early February, Alicia says the company had not offered to reduce the bill. And they said that they would wait to see what the inventory of the estate was. In the meantime, Alicia is trying to sell her mother's longtime home and property. As it stands, if the family ends up having to pay the nearly $82,000 bill, that single helicopter ride could eat up about a third of the estate's value. For NPR News, I'm Emily Siner. And now we're back with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Doctor, for Bill of the Month, we've talked about pricey air ambulance rides before, so that part, it's disturbing, but it's not new. But weren't there changes to help patients avoid these surprise bills? Well, first, let me share an update on this particular bill. This month, the helicopter ambulance company filed in court to collect the entire bill from Deborah's estate, 
That's nearly $82,000. But you're right, the federal law called the No Surprises Act does a lot to protect patients from outrageous air ambulance bills, but it only covers patients with commercial insurance. Okay, but Deborah had public insurance, so why wasn't she protected? Well, it didn't seem necessary for public insurance like Medicare or Medicaid to be included in that law since the government sets rates that are much lower than what companies typically charge. But that only works for Medicare if you understand those ABCs, the complicated stuff. And remember, Deborah didn't pay for Part B, which covers ambulances. We spoke with one health economist who says if Deborah had Part B, the maximum charge Medicare would have allowed would have been less than $10,000. And the patient portion may have been less than $2,000, so big difference there. Can we expect to hear about other sky-high air ambulance bills? Sure, because the No Surprises Act offers a lot of protection, but it's not airtight. This is especially important for people who are uninsured or on high deductible plans. Also, if they live in a rural area like Deborah Pritchard, you have to be especially mindful since you're much more likely to need a so-called life flight, particularly as more rural hospitals close. That is Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you have a confusing or outrageous medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's SHOTS blog and tell us all about it. Ever heard a snippet from a song and just can't recall who sang it or where you heard it before? Yeah, yes. Frustrating, right? Yes, there you go. There you go. Steve does. Now, there's actually a song that's famous for being a song that nobody can quite place. Yeah, it's kind of catchy. Whatever the heck it is, 17 seconds, a fragment of a song, terrible audio quality. And even though it says everyone knows that in the lyrics, nobody actually knows what it is. In 2021, a person known only as Carl92 uploaded it to a crowdsourcing site and it became an internet phenomenon. Everyone knows that. Yeah, and then a subreddit formed around identifying the artist. Ideas were discussed and conspiracy theories were hatched. I mean, could it all just be a clever PR stunt? Well, nobody has identified the artist and it has now gained new life on TikTok. So I've seen a lot of people talk about everyone knows that ulterior motives. And I just think it's one of those songs that was a demo or is a really small local band that recorded it. And the singer I found on TikTok is claiming that the song is by him, but he hasn't uploaded any proof. A super strong theory and one that I believe to be true is that the singer is Kazumasa Oda, a very popular singer from the 80s. Okay, so if you know who performed Everyone Knows That... Or if maybe it was you listening, we would love to know. <laughs> Give the rest of you the answer here. I think it was Steve the crooner in Steve. Everyone knows that. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Happy Leap Day 2024. And welcome to Thursday. This is 89.1 WGLT. We're asking everyone who relies on WGLT to invest in us and support a growing local newsroom. Your donation helps to fund everything, including our robust intern program. Keep Redbirds on the air reporting the news. 
behind-the-scenes producing shows, and so much more. Donate now at WGLT.org. It's 7 o'clock. Libraries are temples of learning and so much more. Next time on 1A, we hear from a panel of librarians who do so much more than check out your books. It's Ask a Librarian, next time on 1A. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Good morning. Kentucky's Mitch McConnell led Senate Republicans for years, influenced almost every big issue, and now says he's stepping down. What legacy does he leave? It's Morning Edition from NPR News. A research farm is breeding genetically modified cloned pigs with organs designed to save human lives. I'm Steve Inskeep. Anime Martinez, NPR's Rob Stein, is the first journalist to tour the farm. We'll hear his exclusive report. Also, we remember the life and career of comedian Richard Lewis. It's Thursday, February 29th. Today in 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first black person to earn an Academy Award. She won Best Supporting Actress for Gone with the Wind, but had to sit at a segregated table at the award ceremony. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The health ministry in Gaza says more than 30,000 people have been killed there in the war between Hamas and Israel. It began last October when Hamas attacked Israel, killing at least 1,200 people. NPR's Aya Batrawi says some Israelis have challenged the death toll, saying some of the Palestinians who have been killed are Hamas fighters. The ministry has been keeping detailed records from hospitals that show most of the deaths since the war began are women and children. That's very much not in dispute. And we've spoken to countless survivors in Gaza and witnessed through our own producer there. Attacks where victims of Israeli airstrikes were civilians, including women, men and children. And Pierre's Aya Batrawi reporting. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will both visit the southern border in Texas today to see immigration conditions. Trump is claiming that his visit is what prompted Biden to go today. The White House contradicts that. It says Biden's visit was already planned and notes he has previously visited the border during his presidency. The immigration issue is proving to be consequential in this year's presidential election. Illinois has removed Donald Trump's name from the state's presidential primary ballot. The state's primary is set for March 19th. From member station WBEZ, Dave McKinney reports Trump is pledging to appeal the decision. Trump attacked the judge's decision as unconstitutional. The judgment now makes Illinois the third state, along with Colorado and Maine, in booting Trump from the ballot on grounds his actions January 6th disqualify him as a candidate under the 14th Amendment. Chicago attorney Karen Lederer represents the Illinois objectors to Trump's candidacy and is praising the ruling. It's contributing to the growing consensus of other reviewing bodies that have recognized and condemned Trump's decisive role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The U.S. Supreme Court is facing pressure to decide Colorado's disqualification of Trump ahead of that state's Tuesday primary. For NPR News, I'm Dave McKinney in Chicago. The Department of Transportation wants to make air travel in the U.S. more accessible to people who use wheelchairs. As NPR's Joel Rose reports, the Biden administration is proposing new standards for how airlines accommodate passengers with disabilities. 
Travelers who use wheelchairs have long complained that airlines often damage or lose them. Now the Biden administration is trying to change that. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the proposed rule would make it easier to hold airlines accountable when they damage or delay the return of a wheelchair. This is about making sure that all Americans can travel safely and with dignity. The rule would also require that airlines provide more training for employees who physically assist passengers with disabilities and handle wheelchairs. The immediate reaction from disability advocates was largely positive, although the rule does not go as far as some had hoped. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.